fundamental sign that the Holy Spirit lives in your life is not signs or wonders or miracles or power. It is the fruit that the Spirit produces. And so for the next few months, I want to promote a new slogan. It's character, stupid. I want to devote a Sunday to each one of the character qualities that Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Imagine what our church would be like. Imagine what your home would be like. Imagine what your spouse would be like. Imagine what your kids would be like. Imagine what you would be like if your heart bore the fruit of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You know, if some of us started bearing this fruit, I think we'd be strangers in our own house. We'd come home and no one would recognize us. Recently, I came across a story that a man named Tom Anderson wrote. He said, I made a vow to myself on the drive down to the vacation beach cottage. For two weeks, I would try to be a loving husband and father, totally loving, no ifs, ands, and buts. The idea had come to me as I listened to a commentator on my car's tape player. He was quoting a biblical passage about husbands being thoughtful of their wives. Then he went on to say, love is an act of the will. A person can choose love. To myself, I had to admit that I had been a selfish husband, that our love had been dulled by my own sensitivity, in petty ways, really, chiding Evelyn for her tardiness, insisting on the TV channel I wanted to watch, throwing out day-old newspapers before Evelyn had a chance to read them. Well, for two weeks, that would change. And it did. Right from the moment I kissed Evelyn at the door and said, that new yellow sweater looks great on you. Oh, Tom, you noticed, she said, surprised and pleased and maybe a little shocked. After the long drive, I wanted to sit and read. Evelyn suggested a walk on the beach. I started to refuse, but then I thought, Evelyn's been alone here with the kids all week, and now she wants to be alone with me. And so we walked on the beach while the kids flew their kites. So it went, two weeks of not calling the Wall Street investment firm where I am the director, a visit to the Shell Museum, though I usually hate museums, holding my tongue while Evelyn's getting ready made us late for a dinner date, Relaxed and happy, that's how the whole vacation passed. And I made a new vow to keep on remembering to choose love. There was one thing that went wrong with my experiment, however. On the last night at our cottage, preparing for bed, Evelyn stared at me with the saddest expression. What's the matter, I asked. Tom, she said in a voice filled with distress, do you know know something I don't know? What do you mean? Well, that checkup I had several weeks ago, our doctor, did he tell you something about me? Tom, you've been so good to me. Am I dying? (laughs) It took a moment for it all to sink in, and then I burst out laughing, and I said, no, honey, wrapping my arms around her, you're not dying. 
I'm just starting to live. You know, it's sad when demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit for two weeks causes your spouse to think you're dying. But I suspect some of us would get a similar response. Now, why does the Word of God compare the character that the Holy Spirit creates in us to fruit? Well, I thought of three reasons. Number one, fruit is visible. Fruit can be seen, it can be touched, it can be smelled, it can be tasted. It is not abstract. It is concrete. Now, some of you are going to sit here through this series and you're going to say, I have all these fruit. They're just hidden inside. They're they're just way down here. And they're not real visible. Well, that can't be so. Because, you see, if you love me, I can see that. If you have joy, I can see that. If you have peace, I can see that. If you have patience, I can see that. Fruit is visible. Secondly, fruit is viable. That is, the fruit reflects the nature of the tree. Jesus said in Luke 6, each tree is known by its own fruit. And then he went on to say, you don't get figs from a thorn tree, you don't get grapes from a briar bush, and you don't get the fruit of the Spirit from a life that is devoid of the Spirit. There was a little boy, he had a big fruit tree outside his bedroom window and he would often get grounded to his room. So he would go to his room, close the door, open the window, climb down the fruit tree, play in the yard, climb back up, close the window, and no one would be the wiser. One day his dad came home from work and said, you know that old fruit tree by the house hasn't borne fruit in years. I'm going to cut it down. Well, the little boy enlisted the help of his brother and they went down to the grocery store and they bought two bushels of apples. And they brought them home and they climbed up in the tree and they tied those apples all over the tree. When his dad came home that evening, he burst into the kitchen and he said, Honey, come and see, it's a miracle. That old tree is full of fruit. And when they went outside, he said, And what makes it even more remarkable is that it's a pear tree. (laughs) Fruit is viable. It reflects the nature of the tree. And then third, fruit is valuable. Fruit only exists for one reason, and that is to be eaten. And fruit does not exist for the sake of the tree. It exists for the sake of those who eat the fruit. When God bears his fruit in your life, yes, it does satisfy you, but it's really there for the purpose of those that you interact with in life. Fruit is valuable. Then I want you to notice a couple other things about the fruit of the Spirit. Number one, this fruit is not produced by us. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You do not manufacture these qualities. The Spirit of God manufactures or produces or develops them in your life. And then secondly, I want you to notice that the word fruit is 
singular. It's not fruits. It's fruit. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that this list is not multiple choice. I can't say, well, I really don't like patience, and I'm not really a fan of self-control, but I would like some joy, and I would like some peace. It doesn't work that way. See, every Christian does not have all of the gifts of the Spirit, but every Christian is to bear all of the graces of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not like apples on a tree where you can come and select one or two that you particularly like. The fruit of the Spirit is like a cluster of grapes. They all come together. Or maybe a better analogy would be that the fruit of the Spirit is like an orange. It's one fruit, but it has multiple sections. It's one fruit, but it has multiple character qualities when that fruit is produced. And by the way, this fruit is never out of season. It's always ripe, and it's always tasty. Now, the first character quality is love. And that's what I want to talk about in our remaining time today. I don't think it's a coincidence that love is listed first. Andrew Murray says, Love is the key, and all the others are ways in which love is manifested. And that's hard to argue with. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, Love is kind. And kindness is in this list. It says love is patient, and patience is in this list. And so these other qualities are really just facets of love. And in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us the greatest of these is love. Earlier in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, we read that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And that word is love. Love is obviously listed first because it is the most important. And all of these other qualities flow from love. Now, what is love? Well, most people today get their definition of love from Hollywood. Hollywood's definition of love ranges from sentimental to cynical to sexual. It's sentimental. It's like the old movie... Love story. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Or it's cynical. It's Tina Turner singing, What's love got to do with it? Or it's sexual. Take your pick. I feel like making love. So I want to start by exposing some false presumptions about love. Number one, Most people believe incorrectly that love comes naturally. That I don't have to think about it, I don't have to deal with it, it just kind of naturally comes out of me. In his book, Bold Love, Dan Allender tells the story of a conversation he had while sitting next to a man on the airplane. Here's what he writes. When I told him I was on my way to address several hundred people on the topic of love and forgiveness, he peered over his bifocals and replied, How nice. Love, huh? Well, I guess we all need to be reminded of the importance of love. Our discussion soon centered around what he viewed as the central driving purpose in his life. 
He told me that what pleased him most about his grown children was their tenacity in pursuing education, careers, and success. They had learned well from their father, and he was indeed proud. He later told me that his three children had experienced five divorces and that he had grandchildren whom he had not seen for five years due to unhappy marital endings. And his own two divorces seemed to trouble him little. I eventually asked him how important it was to teach his children to love and to remain tenaciously committed to people. His response was highly illuminating. He said, I never taught my children about love. I suppose I thought they would naturally pick up what needed to be learned about those things. Love, he told me, was noble and natural and therefore as basic to life as breathing. Then he added, I taught my children to love by example, not by word. I hope that was enough. And Allender concludes, it was difficult to tell him it was not enough. It's not enough because love does not come naturally to sinful human beings. And that man's relational carnage, seven divorces among four people in two generations, gave evidence to that fact. You see, love does not come naturally. Love comes supernaturally. Love is the first character quality that the Spirit of God produces as fruit in my life. Second false presumption. Most people believe incorrectly that love is uncontrollable. We say, I fell in love, and later we say what? I fell out of love. The implication is that I had no control over, oops, I'm in love, oops, I'm out of love. It's uncontrollable. We hear people say, I must be in love, my head is spinning. I'm weak in the knees. I'm in a whirl. It's kind of like getting the flu. You can't help it. That's why we say people in love do the craziest things. Like that's okay. But you see, love is not uncontrollable. In fact, the first quality in the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the last quality is what? Self-control. Love that is the fruit of the Spirit of God does not get you out of control. It gets you in control. And then the third false presumption. Most people believe incorrectly that love is only a feeling. Someone has said love is a feeling you feel when you feel that what you feel is a feeling you've never felt before. Isn't that the common conception of love? Love is a quiver in your liver. Love is an ocean of emotion. It's a knot about here. And of course, the problem with feelings is what? They come and go. And people who base love on feelings go from exciting to existing to exhausting to expire. Puppy love does not last through the dog days of life. 
Love is not a feeling of the emotions. It's a commitment of the will. If love were an emotion, then God could not command us to love. But Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. In fact, in Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, love your enemies. Now, when are you going to feel like loving your enemies? You never are. But you see, love is not a feeling. What is love? Well, let me give you a definition of love. Love is desiring the very best for others, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. Because love is unconditional. Love is desiring the very best for you, no matter what it costs me, with no strings attached, expecting nothing in return. Now, I set out this week to make a nice outline of the characteristics of love. And I got really frustrated. Because I had like 25 points in the outline, and I couldn't get them all to start with the same letter. And I kept adding things to the list as I went along. And then I came across a verse that explained why I was having problems. Ephesians 3.19, Paul prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So you can't take love and put it into a nice little package because it surpasses knowledge. You really can't come to know love mentally. You can only come to know love experientially as you receive it from God and as you pass it on to other people. That's why even my definition of love is inadequate. In fact, if you look in Scripture, you will find there is no definition of love in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says love is, and then it gives all these qualities. It's just a description of love. There is no definition of love in Scripture. It is not defined. It is only demonstrated to us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. What is the demonstration of the love of God? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. God desired the very best for us, no matter what it cost Him, and He expects nothing in return. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me. How do I know? He gave himself for me. That's the demonstration. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved us. How do we know? And gave himself for us. The demonstration of love is the cross. That is the ultimate expression of the love of God. You know what's interesting to me? When I read those verses, love is in the past tense. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God 
Paul says in Galatians 2.20, God loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5.2, He loved us, past tense, and gave Himself for us. Why is it in the past tense that He loved us? Well, it's because it's not because He doesn't love us in the present. It's in the past tense because when we want to find out how much God loved us, we look back at the cross. Because that is the ultimate expression of the love of God. If He has done that for us, what more can He do? And since love is not defined, it's only demonstrated, it also tells us that love is not an emotion. Love is action. Aren't you thankful John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the world that He got a gushy feeling? God so loved the world that he got all tingly inside. God so loved the world that he set up in heaven and saying, Oh, earthlings, I love thee. No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Love is active. Love is demonstrated to us. And the ultimate act of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I'm also thankful this morning that God demonstrated His love to us personally. One of my favorite verses is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. But I found a verse I like better than that. It's Ephesians 5.2. It tells us Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. But then I found a verse I like even more than that. And that's Galatians 2.20 where it says that God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the demonstration of his love is not just universal, it's personal to each one of us. And not only does God demonstrate love, but the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Now, that's an amazing statement. God is love. That tells me that love is not a mood that God gets into once in a while. God is love. Whenever I come to God in prayer, I don't have to say, well, I hope God is in a good mood today. God is love. I can tend to be in various moods. That's why my kids have learned to come talk to me about difficult things after dinner. After I've eaten, I'm in a little better mood than I am before. God's never in a mood. God is love. Love, which tells me that love is not just something he sends, it's not just something he manufactures, it's not just something he produces. God is love. You can never think about God without thinking about love. Because God is love. God is always desiring the very best for you, no matter what it costs him, and expecting nothing in return. That is the character of our God. You say, well, how much does God love me? Well, it's like the little boy when they asked him, how much does God love you? He just held out his hands and said, he loves me this much. And that's the truth. The cross is the expression of how much God loves me and you. You know, when I was in Bible college, I had a girlfriend and she put a, a, a letter in my mailbox one day, kind of a almost a banner is a big thing. And I opened it up and it said, God loves Danny Green just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. 
And I kind of folded it back up so no one would see it because I thought that was bad theology. I thought, what, you know, God loves me as much as he loves you. That can't be right. Then I found a verse in John 17, 23. And if you've never marked this verse, you might want to. John 17, 23. Jesus is praying to the Father here. And he says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me. And then notice the last phrase of verse 23. And didst love them even as thou didst love me. Wow. Jesus is talking to the Father and he said, you love Danny Green just as much as you love me. How much does God love you? He loves you enough to sacrifice his son and he loves you just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. I found an even more amazing verse down in verse 26 of that same chapter. Notice what it says. Jesus, still talking to the Father, says, And I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them. God, God has taken his love and he has placed it inside of you if you're a believer here this morning, which tells me that you have the capacity to love like God loves. Love doesn't come naturally, but when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He places His love inside of you, and He gives you that capacity to love like He loves. That's why Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is in us. God's love has just been poured out in us by the Holy Spirit. That's why someone said some of us need some spiritual Drano to let that love that's been poured out in our hearts flow out to other people. See, that's why Jesus could say in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. You see, love is the evidence to other people that I'm saved. Now, we oftentimes misread that verse. When we want to evaluate some, whether somebody's a believer or not, we say, well, does he have his doctrine right? Does he carry a big black Bible? Can he define justification and sanctification and premillennialism and dispensationalism? And Does he drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do? See, the evidence that I'm a follower of Jesus is love. And if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. That's why John could make this statement in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God. See, it's not optional. It's the essence. When I'm a believer, God puts His love inside of me. And it's the evidence to others that I'm saved. But you know, not only that, it's also the evidence to myself that I'm saved. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13. First John 3, 13. 
He says, Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. How do I know I have passed out of death into life? Because I love the brethren. You see, before I was a Christian, verse 13 says, I hated Christians. Didn't really like to be around them. Was very uncomfortable with them. The way that I know that I am now a Christian is that I love the very people that I used to hate. And that's pretty amazing because I'm not very loving and some of you aren't very lovable. But the evidence in my life is that transformation that God has put His love inside of me and I now love people that I could not stand and did not want to be around before. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord. It's just, it's just other believers I can't stand. Well, that doesn't work. In fact, look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If you're making that statement, this is your life verse. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can't say, I love God, but I hate my brother. Because John says, you have to love that tangible brother if you really love God. You know, it's easy to love God. Because he doesn't annoy you, he doesn't offend you, he doesn't, he doesn't squeeze the toothpaste in the middle. He doesn't do any of those irritating things. It's easy to hypothetically say, I love God. In fact, I hear people sometimes say, Lord, in prayer, they just say, Lord, I wish there was some way I could show my love to you. Well, there is. Love is children. In practical expressions. Now, I have two brothers. And I love them both, but I didn't choose them. They just popped into the world. And I got them the way they are. And that that happens in the body of Christ. People are coming into the body of Christ all the time, and some of them have baggage with them. Some of them are lovable, some of them aren't very lovable. That's not the issue. The issue is that they are your brother and sister in Christ. And love should be the expression. You say, well, how do I love my brother or my sister? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just look at the way that you love and care for yourself and then do the same thing for your neighbor. Most of you got up today and you brushed your teeth and washed your face and combed your hair and fed your stomach. Make sure you're well clothed. Make sure you're comfortable. He's simply saying all the things that you do for yourself, very naturally, just turn that focus and do those same things for your brothers and sisters. That's the expression of love. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 16. He said, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is desiring the very best for you, no matter what it costs me, even when it means laying down my life and expecting nothing in return. Now, what's it mean to lay down your life for your brother? We'll look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. He gets a little more particular. He says, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need 
and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, he's not saying if you ever get the opportunity to die as a martyr for your brother, take it. He's saying you ought to be laying down your life in little bits and pieces every day for your brother. You see, if you lost your life today, what would you give up? You would give up your time, your possessions, your money, your energy, your desires, your plans. He's simply saying lay those things down out of love for others. And then he caps this off in verse 18 by saying, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Heard about a little girl who was invited to her first grade friend's house for dinner. The vegetable was buttered broccoli. So the mother asked her if she liked it. She said, oh yes, I love it. And when the bowl came around with the broccoli in it, she declined to take any. So the hostess said to her, I thought you said you loved broccoli. And the little girl said, oh yes ma'am, I do. Just not enough to eat it. Some of us say we love the Lord and we love our brothers and sisters. But not enough to lay down our lives for them. John said love is not in word only. Can you imagine going into the mirror in the morning and your hair's sticking out and you got stubble from the night and you look in the mirror and you say... I love you. You're my favorite person. And you walk away and you do nothing about the problems. See, we would never do that for ourselves, but we oftentimes do that for our brothers and sisters. We say, God bless you, I love you, I care about you. But we don't do anything about the problems. And John says that's not love. Because love that is only spoken and not shared is not love at all. Love is the first quality of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a very visible quality that should be evident in our lives. It should be hanging in our lives like ripe fruit. And when it's not there, we haven't got anything. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with all languages and know all mysteries and have all gifts and have all faith, but have not love, I am nothing. Let me ask you this morning, are you desiring the very best for others, no matter what it costs you, and expecting nothing in return? That's love. How do I get that love? It's real simple. It's a love produced by the Spirit of God in my life. And so if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, by simply doing that, He puts His Spirit inside of you forever. And He produces His fruit. If you are a Christian here today and you're not seeing this fruit in your life, it's probably, probably because the Bible tells us that you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And you can quench the Holy Spirit of God. And so what you need to do is let the Spirit of God have control over your life. You see, the key to fruit is the root. And that's the Spirit of God. And He should be, have, have full control of our lives. As Darla sang earlier to the Lord, you simply need to say, come and make my heart your home. 
And when He has full reign in your life, He will produce His fruit.